I'm going to try something a little different this morning in how we approach uh, where we're going uh, in the sermon. And just to let you know, we're going to take a break uh, from Judges uh, for a while. And when I mean a while, that means we may get back to it uh, at, at some point. Um, and it's not because I don't want to deal with the last parts of Judges, uh, but uh, we need to move on in the life of the church, in the seasons of the life of the church, to some other issues and to deal with some other things and to talk about some other things. And, and then we'll circle back around uh, and finish off Judges at some point. I encourage you, go uh, and read it. If you're not encouraged by the fact that Samson is in the book of Hebrews as a pillar of faith and is in heaven, well, I don't know what's going to encourage you. I look at Samson and go, thank goodness, because I relate a lot to that guy and the messiness of his life and how he continued to make mistakes, but God was so gracious and continually built him up uh, and used him. But today we're going to go in a little bit different direction. Uh, today, and then, beginning, and then picking up again next week, next week after the service, uh, we're going to have, for lack of a better term, sort of a ministry celebration. It's going to be over in the other building. And the different ministries of our church, women's ministries and the Bible studies and discipleship and youth and children and all are going to have different booths set up there. And you're going to be able to come and to see what's going on and to then sign up and be a part of it. And we'll send out information this week so you can kind of see it and have it in front of you. Uh, and then be able to know what you want to be a part of. And if there's something that you uh, don't see there, then let me give you something. The Christian church has entre always been entrepreneurial. If you don't see it, start it. And then if you stop it, don't expect me to pick it up, by the way. Uh, because uh, the fact of the matter is, start it, and we will help resource you, but we're not going to take it on for you. We want to see God use all of your different gifts in ways. So if there's not something there uh, next week, we encourage you to see what you can do to start something. But in the middle of that, it's, it's so important to know three things. One, you need to know who your maker is. You need to know how it is that you came about, and you need to know a lot about your creator. And then you need to know an awful lot about the relationship between you and your creator, and then in that relationship, what happened and how you were redeemed, how it is that you were saved, how it is that you were transformed uh, through the work of your redeemer. So you need to know an awful lot about your maker and creator and an awful lot about your redeemer. And then you need to know through that relationship, and all, you need to know a lot about who you are, your identity. So all the different ministries that we have going on are, are designed for that purpose, to know who God is in all of his glory and splendor and majesty, to know who Christ is and what his purpose in the world was in relationship to you, and then finally to know who you are. Because most of us don't know anything about those. We have a kindergarten-level education, uh, and we sit around, and we keep coming back to church and keep coming back to church hoping that we'll move forward, and we don't, and it takes more uh, than just coming on Sunday mornings. And what I'm going to talk about a little bit today is sort of starting at the backside, starting and saying, do you know who you are? And I'm going to use a great little book by Max Licato. Uh, some of you are familiar with it. It's called You Are Special. So I'm going to read it this morning as our introduction into uh, the sermon. I'm 45 years old, and I have this on my shelf in my office because I relate so much to the lead character uh, in this. Is it working up there? Awesome. Good. First page. The Wemmicks were small wooden people, and all the wooden people were carved by a woodmaker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village, and each Wemmick was different. Some had big noses. Others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats, others wore coats. 
but all were made by the same carver and all lived in the village. All day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars and dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars, too. Some could lift big sticks high over their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else and get another star. Others, though, could do little, and they got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so the people would give him more dots. Then when he would try to explain why he fell, he would say something silly, and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots, the wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. A few times he went outside, he hung around with other Wemmicks who had lots of dots, and he felt better around them. One day he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for having no dots. So they would run up and give her a star, but it would fall off. Others would look down on her for having no stars. So they would give her a dot, but it wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. And with that, the Wemmick who had no stickers turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me? Punchinello cried out. Lucia didn't hear him. So Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, and he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was, and he had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was uh, as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello... The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. And Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm. The maker spoke softly and thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. 
Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what other women think. You don't? No. And you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you're pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me? Special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My pain is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him just like this, much less his maker. He, needed, he didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no mark, said Punchinello. I know. She told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? The maker spoke softly. Because she decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, come, just come see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you were special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. Great little story, isn't it? Amazing how we can relate to a silly little wooden figure created in the mind of Max Licato, the pastor and author. I read that to my boys for years, and I always thought that I was a parent trying to encourage them, but what I really felt was it was me trying to remind myself of who I was. Because I don't know about you, but I relate to Punchinello a lot. Maybe some of you relate to the ones with all the stars. And you're the ones who put stars and dots on people, but you know deep underneath there is an incredible level of insecurity that comes of wondering if you can sustain it, wondering if you're going to be able to maintain that in that peer group that you're in. It's amazing how little punchinellos like to hang out with other punchinellos. They hang out with other people, and you see them, and we, we use cool terms nowadays. They're the marginalized youth or people, or they're the fringe group. But really what it is is the folks who just don't know how or want to get into the mainstream of what our culture says is cool or acceptable. Well, the scriptures have something to say about all of this. And if you've got your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to see and spend a few minutes together of looking at what God has to say about who you are and how you should view yourself and how you should then view other people and what the ministry of the church is all about. 
So go ahead and flip with me over there. And while you're turning, uh, we're going to listen together to God's word. This is his very word, beginning in verse 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To Christ be the glory in the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. The first thing we're going to ask is, how is it that, or how do we understand or regard ourselves and others? How do we regard ourselves uh, and other people from a biblical perspective? He says there in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Something has happened. There is something that has changed, and we have to now view Christ in a different way. He wasn't just a man, but we view him in a way uh, that he was fully God and fully man, brought together perfectly without confusion or corruption. And he was there, and we regard him in a particular way. And in regarding him that way, we have to then regard everyone else who is in him, who is a Christian and believer, differently. And to step back one step, who created all things? Let's just do a little quick thing. Who created all things? God created all things. And it says that God created man and woman in his image, the, the, the term there is the imago Dei. The, he's created us in the image of God. And therefore, all humanity has dignity. All humanity has value. And so we need to understand how we approach even the person who's not a Christian, uh, who's not in the church. And so we need to begin and ask, where is the standard derived? Where is the, the mark made? How do we understand how to to really get a grip on how we regard one another. Well, there's a cultural standard, isn't there? Paul says we no longer regard one another according to the sarks, according to the flesh. He's saying we're not going to regard one another according to how the world regards one another. The world regards one another based on worldly standards. And some of those worldly standards would be things uh, like, uh, they're very fluctuating standards, and, and they'd be like your success. How many of you have been successful at some point in your life? A few of you? How many of you have not been successful at other points of your life? A few others of you. And some of you raised your hand twice because there's seasons and points in life when we're wildly successful and there's other points when we are wildly unsuccessful uh, in our endeavors. And the world looks at us and goes, oh, you're successful, therefore you're good. You're a great man because you've done this. You're a great woman because you've done this. And it's a standard that fluctuates. And then what you find out is that when you're not really so successful anymore, you're not in anymore. 
You're not in the same clubs, in the same groups, in the same conversations, uh, and all of those things. And so we have fluctuating standards of success in the world. Are, are you a good athlete? Are you uh, a good student? Uh, are you good uh, at what you do? And then there's another fluctuating standard uh, of looks. How do you look? No offense to the pharmaceutical companies or any of you who have been successful in the pharmaceutical industry, but it's interesting that when I speak to somebody who is a pharmaceutical rep, boy, they're sharp looking. They're former athletes normally, cheerleaders. They ran cross country in their undergraduate work. They have a look because you want to put your sales force out there that looks really good. And they've done studies that say people who are physically fit make more money uh, and are better at sales than people who are maybe a little bit obese or a little bit uh, out of shape or all of those things. Uh, they say that people who have facial hair aren't trusted as much. Ian, we're in trouble. <laughs> so, um, but isn't it interesting how you look at me and how I look gauges whether or not I'm successful or good in your eyes. And so we come and we go... I mean, When's the last time you saw somebody who gained some weight and you went, boy, you're looking great today? But if you think someone's losing weight, you go, wow, you're looking good today. You've got yourself in shape. Well, what shape? Who determines what beauty is? Go to any museum. Go to anywhere in Europe uh, and look at the statues from, from days gone by. And there was a difference in body type, which beauty was all about. You go on a mission trip to some other things, and some of you ladies who are working so hard uh, to be in American shape, you'd go to Africa, and they'd look at you and go, what's wrong with you? They'd pinch your skin, and they'd go, Where, what's wrong? Are you poor? Because fat and wealth came together. Of If you ate a lot, then you were wealthy and successful. See, it just changes what culture you're in. Or maybe the fluctuating standard uh, for you is just mysterious unknown. And you know what I mean, because you walked into the room today and you were judging others and you were looking around to see how you stacked up. I dropped Will off yesterday. He's on the Naval ROTC scholarship at South Carolina. And he was in a room with 36 other Naval ROTC guys and girls. And all of them, it was funny, they walked in the room and they sat down and not one of them looked down. You know what they did? You know what they were doing? I can take him. I can take her. I got more of what it is than they have. And the others were probably looking around, and some of them were looking around and going, oh, no, this person's got more than I do. I'm not sure I can take them. And we walk into any room. Why did you choose the clothes you chose today? Ladies especially. Men, you don't care. You're just glad you're dressed. <laughs> but ladies were probably going, oh. Well, I've got to wear this because if I don't, it's going to do somebody. And we just have all these different things and there's all these fluctuating standards. And then what happens is we're in these popularity polls and there's some that are tangible responses and measurable and others that aren't. And you just never know why you're in or why you're out. I look at it and I think junior high probably could be the most brutal three-year period in the entire lifespan. Because it is amazing in junior high. And no offense, well, I'm just going to offend you. The girls in junior high are really brutal. Well, we're going to be friends with them. Why? Well, we like them. And then the next thing is, no, we're not friends with them. You talk to them, and those of you who are teachers or parents or educators, you know, and your kids come home. And like, how was school? Well, no one talked to me today. Well, why not? I don't know. I'm just not in anymore. 
And so the cultural standards and norms are huge in that way. And we try to live by them, and you try to live by them, it leads you to bondage. You are going to be in bondage to the opinions of other people. You're going to be in bondage to your own opinion of yourself. You're going to be in bondage to the mirror. You're going to be in bondage to your bank account. It leads to bondage. And what you find yourself doing when you follow the cultural, fleshly standard of who you are and who the world is around you, that you are constantly in bondage, and you're constantly trying, and you're constantly moving, and you're trying to keep up. I was talking to a student at the campus yesterday, and I said, what excites you uh, about college? And she said, I get to recreate myself again. I said, well, what are you going to recreate yourself into? She goes, I don't know. I'll figure that out. What do you think the sorority system at the University of South Carolina is going to tell her she needs to recreate herself into? The image of the living God? Or the image of Allure magazine, or Glamour, or Cosmo, or whatever it is? And so we try to live by those standards. But you see, the standard has been changed by the gospel. You need to get that. The standard has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is what? A new creation. The old is totally gone and the new has come. Something has happened in here. And now the standard has been changed and we are now... In Christ, different than we were before. Do you know that and believe that? When you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you are absolutely transformed. And you're not held to any standard other than his. And he looks at you and he says something like this to you. You know what's happened to you in this incredible transaction of the cross? That when you come into relationship with my son, and when you say, as we did in the time of confession, Lord, I can't fix myself. Or in the vows of the new members. I agree that I am a sinner desperately in need uh, of Christ. Because I am deserving of the judgment of God himself. And that I have to come and have Christ. Well what took place was all of your debts have been paid. You are fully justified in Christ. uh, That it is justified just as if I'd never sinned. That it's perfect and that you are made right in him. And that when he looks at you, he sees you as a son or a daughter. That he says that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That your name is written in the Lamb's uh, book of life. That you have the Holy Spirit taking up residence within you. And then he goes on in this statement. He says, look there in verse 21. For our sake he made himself to be sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God himself. Do you know how he viewed his son? As a mirror image of himself, except in human form. He said, he's my son. He is equal with God in power and in glory, is what our confession says. But that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, he came down and took on the form of a servant, even a slave, and died on the cross so that he could redeem us. And so now, because of the work of Christ, he looks at you just like he looks at his son. Do you believe that? You can nod your heads, but you really don't because you don't live like you do. This morning, how many of you looked in a mirror this morning? Honest. Come on. Was this your first thought as you walked by the mirror? (sighs) The righteousness of God himself. (laughs) Anybody? I didn't. I was like, dang. (laughs) I've used the joke before. Someone asked me, literally asked me the other day, so what size pants do you wear? Which is really a rude comment, by the way. <laughs> and I said, 36s. And they said, you don't wear 36s. And I said, I do wear 36s. And it reminded me of a friend who one time asked me that question. I said, I wear 36s. He said, you wear 36 red lines. 
I said, what? He goes, you wear 36s, but you take them off, and there's a red line going all the way around. <laughs> and so I stand in the mirror, and I'm like, God's saying, when you see yourself in the mirror, you're the righteousness of Christ himself. You're his absolute beautiful son or daughter who was worthy of the death of his very beloved son, Jesus Christ, who came because he loved you so much that he was willing to suffer atrocities beyond the cross and to hell itself so that you never would. That's who you are. And that he says of you, you're absolutely handsome, you're absolutely beautiful, that you are a man or a woman and you have what it takes and don't listen to the world around you, but listen to the God who created you, who saved you and yells from heaven trying to convince you that you are the righteousness of God and you and me, we don't believe it. Because I say we don't believe it because we don't live like we believe it. We live passive, fearful lives with little or no confidence. We have lots of hope, if you want to use that word. Well, I hope God will do this, and I hope this, but there's no confidence that we're going to say, I believe firmly that my God, who is my Father, because of the work of my elder brother Jesus, because of that, I know that I can do immeasurably more in this world than I can even imagine, that I am going to be more than a conqueror, that I don't have to give in to the sin that's in my life, that it doesn't matter what you think about me because I hear a voice that's greater than your voice. And it's a voice that says, Bill, you have it. Fill in your name. You have it. And too many of us are still in bondage to our own thoughts and our own past and to the voice of the evil one who wants to bring all that stuff up. When God tries to remind me of who I am in him, you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to go, really, you? You, the idiot who used to do this, you, the idiot who still does this, you, Bill McCutcheon, who continues to do this and to do that, you're the righteousness of God. Oh, you've believed a lie, and it is so hard to believe what God is telling us to be true, isn't it? And what we have to do is keep pounding it down into our hearts, into it, to hear it and to hear it and to hear it. And I still hold, I have a diary in which I wrote, how long am I going to try to gain the approval of a dead father? My dad died 22 year, 21 years ago last week. And for years, I was trying to get his approval. And God finally was saying, you've got the approval. Mine. Whether or not my dad ever approved of me, and I believe he did, but I just couldn't hear it. But it didn't matter. Because I had my Father in Heaven's approval through my elder brother, Jesus Christ. And so do you in Christ. Do you believe that? And if you really believed it, do you think it would change the way in which you lived your life? I wouldn't be afraid of you. I wouldn't lie to you. Why? Because if I mess up, you know what I'm simply going to say? I blew it. And whether you want to walk away from me or not, that's okay. Whether I balloon up to a 44, it doesn't matter. Because my God's going to say, you're still my son, made in my image. And I love you. And it doesn't matter if you get into the skinny club or not, Bill. Because the flesh is going to go and become dust one day, and I'm going to recreate it anyway. Quit worrying so much about what everybody else thinks. And so with that in mind, we're going to end with this today. The standard has changed because of the gospel, and it is a struggle because it's too good to be true, isn't it? 
And you know what you had to do to gain that? Zero. You didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to change yourself. There's still a lot of you who are here today trying to change yourself to get to a level that you've determined will be acceptable to God. If I change a few things and do a few things, then God will accept me. And the fact of the matter is God will accept you right absolutely where you are now in his son. If you simply hit your knees and go, God, I can't do it on my own. And I'm worn out from trying to save me. And then what we do at the end of this is now what do we do with this truth? And in the few minutes we have left, or don't have left, uh, we'll say this in verses 18, the second part of it in verse 20. And now because of all of this, because of what's happened and who we are in Christ, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to Christ. What he's saying is this. Now, all of you people who get this, guess what you need to do with it? Don't hold it for yourself. You have a ministry of reconciliation. He is sending us out as ambassadors into the world to tell the world about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that what we're doing here is this is, as a friend of mine who is a minister said, this is the locker room. And it's good to be in a locker room. It's because you get game plans and you get speeches and there's, and there's times together and you look around. But games are never won on the locker room, in the locker room. Games are won on the field. Games and battles are never won in the briefing place, in the tent. They're won out on the front lines. So we're here and we're learning about this and we're believing these things together and we're celebrating these truths. And then guess what we're going to go do? Get out of here. Because what happens in locker rooms is there's a lot of people who, they bicker a little bit about game plans. You spend too much time in a locker room. There's people who never see the field, but yet they know the game plan really well, and they like to critique the ones who are on the field. And then there's also people in the locker room who are absolutely exhausted because they've been out there fighting, and they've been out there playing, and they come back in the locker room, and they see the guys who don't have any grass stains on their uniforms, and those guys, and they go, why aren't you out, do, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you helping? And so we got to get out of the locker room, and so we go out into the world in a ministry of reconciliation, of speaking of God reconciling himself to mankind. That's the purpose of this church. You understand that? This church is a place where we're going to be built up as individuals, knowing who we are, so that we go out in the world. And we've got ministries that we can impact the world for. And the fact of the matter is we've got a lot of folks in this church who aren't doing anything. And we've got to get motivated and we've got to get busy, not because we want to earn the Father's favor, but because we have it and he's changed us in such a way that we go out. And I'm going to say this publicly because I'm, I, I, we're a family and we're going to talk some family. We had Family Promise here this week. And Family Promise is an awesome ministry where we try to minister to the needs of those who are less privileged in our community. And we had to tell them yesterday they couldn't spend the night here at our church last night because no one had volunteered to stay and spend the night with us. Somebody else was going to do it, right? We're too busy. And we can't care for the needs of other people and, and physically, incarnationally live uh, among them. We have things that we want to do and we want to be engaged in and we don't have people to do them because we haven't bought into the fact that we have a ministry to get out of the locker room. And so we want to encourage us this fall, our marching orders this fall and our game plan this fall is we're moving out of the locker room. And I hope you'll go with us. I hope you'll go with me. 
And to my own shame, I'd been here a year and never did family promise until this past Wednesday night. And my oldest son and I did it. And we stayed there. And it was crazy and it was fun and it was overwhelming. But it was something to be able to sit and to go. You got a tough life, I know. But there's a God in heaven who's got a plan for you if you'll listen. And he can do some of the great things in your life. You just have to be available to do it. So I want to challenge you in that way. So, with that. Who are you in Christ? You are a righteousness of God himself. You are more loved than you ever dare dream or imagine in him. The gospel is the orphan's wildest dream. And so we come to him and then we go out because you know what I know about a lot of people? They need to hear this message. Do you think that? Do you have neighbors and friends and family members who need to hear this message? Does anybody know anybody who needs to hear this message? Let's do this. Okay. Go be a minister, an ambassador of reconciliation to them. Share this good news with them somehow. And if you don't know how, then we'll help you. We'll train you. We'll build you up, and we'll go with you to go do it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your church, which wasn't left here just to be a parks and rec ministry. We weren't here just to gather together for some good music. We uh, weren't here for anything more than to be on the battlefield. And coming together on Sunday mornings with our wounds to be healed through the beauty of community and the power of your spirit, to be encouraged with your words through the scripture, to sing and to be in the presence of our God and then to go out. So God, mobilize your church here that we would go out and that we would see you do great things for your namesake. And would we represent you well in the world? be it in our elementary schools, our high schools, in our homes, in our businesses, on the golf courses, wherever it is, would we represent you with incredible humility but with great courage and confidence that our God reigns and that we are new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works that you have prepared for us ahead of time. Show them to us today and this week, we pray. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Stand and sing. This last hymn that we're going to sing together is Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. And um, I just want to invite you, the, the song says joyful. And then it says again, joyful, joyful, joyful. And uh, we're going to liven this song up a little bit. And, and we just invite you um, to clap, not just for like the first three chords, but all the way through maybe. Or raise your hands or just... Just let these words come over you and let them come out of your mouth as you give praise and thanks to God that he has said to us, his children, you are special. You are my beloved. You are mine. And may we exit this place today with this joyful song coming forth from our lips. So would you join us, please?
right, about half of you are there. We can do this together. All right, here we go. Great job. Amen. Phil, I want to tell you something. I come and I say what